You're listening to the I Love You Keep Going podcast with George Haas. For more information, please visit our website at www.metagroup.org. That's www.m-e-t-t-a-g-r-o-u-p.org. So welcome, everybody. This is I Love You Keep Going. It is July 27th, 2023 at 7.35 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time. And I was talking to some people this week, and the topic that kept coming up over and over again is what to expect from practice, which I thought was quite an interesting topic, mainly because what to expect from practice really is very dependent on what you're practicing. And what's also quite interesting is in the West, where we really do sort of construct these uh, kinds of practices that we do from a lot of different sources, it's unpredictable what actually is going to happen uh, from the way that you practice. So I thought that that was a, a, an interesting conversation to have. We uh, have a, a lot of resources for understanding what practice is. Most of them are not through lineages or um, traditional uh, practices that um, come out of monastic communities. Um, we are very big on um, uh, these small aspects of practice uh, that are explained in books and uh, through different ways of uh, gathering the information that are really, in some sense, secularized, pulled out of the context of the tradition that they come from. And so because we can grab them from all over the place, we, in some sense, are assembling for ourselves the, a practice that's unique uh, to uh, the way that each of us practices. And whereas in a lineage-type practice that's very defined and the stages are very defined, the expectations of what comes from that kind of practice are also quite predictable. If you practice, uh, for instance, in uh, one of my favorite practices, which is the Six Lamps practice that comes from Bon Buddhism, if you practice in the way that the Six Lamps is set up, you tend to have these uh, visions, or it's often called vision practice, which are quite predictable. Uh, but when you gather uh, different ways of practicing for yourself and, and assemble them, then you have the kind you have the results that come from the kind of practice that you. But if but if you're the one who's creating the path and and practicing in that particular way. The results then aren't predictable. Uh, who here really has a, a, a teacher that they're uh, they've organized their practice around and are in regular contact with that teacher and explaining the progression of the practice and then being given the the next instructions to follow. When I started practicing, um, I actually I think through my own conditioning, had a very hard time fitting into different communities and hanging out very long in a particular community. And so I would take in the teachings uh, that were offered and develop a practice around that. Uh, but then when I moved to another community, the, 
the way in which I practice and what I understood about practice would change. I often hear in, in the community of meditators uh, the expectation of certain things happening from practice and then the conversation around whether or not you get there or you don't get there. But I often find it divorced from a traditional way of having those outcomes. The teacher that I found was Shinzen Young, and even though he said, uh, this is now 25 years ago, um, that he was teaching Theravada meditation, actually, when uh, uh, my understanding of what the different kinds of practice are is deep, and I could see that actually he was uh, drawing from a lot of different practices that he'd done in creating a, a way of practicing. So he was uh, originally in Japan in a, a Japanese Vajrayana monastery. He studied in Taiwan with a, a traditional Theravada teacher. His, um, I think, relationship with Sasaki Roshi, which uh, he was his translator that lasted for 30 years, was also greatly influencing the way in which he described practice. So in some sense, the practice that he developed was this great uh, Western experiment of, of assembling a practice from across all of the different uh, vehicles. And then, of course, the process of then secularizing it so that the uh, instructions are, in a Western sense, removed from the associated texts that the practices came from, so that it's hard to trace uh, where something in the practice comes from, not an uncommon experience. And also, if you're sitting with me, you're also sitting with somebody who has come in from that tradition and, and assembled a way of practicing. I tend to focus on the uh, meditation-based attachment work because I think that it's a preliminary practice that really opens up the possibilities for uh, deep practice in a more uh, traditional way later. But that because in the West, so many of us are inclined toward a psychological understanding of what's actually happening and a psychological way of describing what's happening. So that can be a useful way of practicing, particularly in the beginning when we're beginning to examine our conditioning and how our conditioning interferes with the, the, the happiness in life. I think in the West, because it still isn't so mainstream, to practice meditation in the way that uh, the Eastern practices have come here. I guess what I mean by that is, if you go to Asia and enter into contact with the monastic communities there, uh, meditation is not the primary uh, practice. They have uh, a bunch of different ways of being, uh, in a monastery as a monastic, not all of them are centered on 
meditation. But in the West, largely the meditation communities, even in the name of them, have formed around the practice of meditation. So uh, in the non-religious, non-Asian um, communities uh, that have grown up in the West around the exploration of insight and enlightenment, meditation is the main uh, vehicle. The different ways in which you can come into the practice is, you know, widely varied, really depends on who it is that is explaining this to you. When I started my meditation practice, so this is uh, going back to the, the 60s, uh, really, you know, my introduction to the practice of meditation was through the Beatles' White Album. <laughs> I don't know if you know the record. It's a lovely record, by the way. Um, and then the Maharishi and uh, the Beatles going to India and learning to meditate and then that practice uh, really coming up as uh, transcendental meditation and uh, that early piece of uh, mantra practice. And then various kinds of concentration practice associated with the breath. Uh, I think the the deep dive I did on my own was through Ram Dass's book, Be Here Now, which came out in the early 70s. But I wasn't able to find a community very well with that practice. When I moved to New York and during the period of AIDS there, when life was so painful and so stressful, the monasteries that were uh, nearby were Tibetan. There was an opening of the Tibetan practices, the uh, particularly Trungpa, And then it wasn't really until the 90s when I came out to L.A. that I discovered the Theravada practices, and they were so simple in comparison. I, um, as a gay person growing up in the, the 60s, uh, uh, developed a uh, reaction to organized religion because of the hostility toward uh, the predicament I found myself in, which was to be a gay person <laughs> in the world uh, where it was illegal and they put you in jail for it, uh, uh, supported by the contention that it was uh, sinful and uh, psychologically maladaptive. So the pageantry of the Tibetan way of practicing um, was easily associated with the pageantry of Christianity. The I started practicing an ordinary dharma, which was a traditional metavipassana way of practicing, but the main uh, teacher there, uh, Katriana Reed, the main teacher was uh, Thet Nhat Hanh, who was a Zen teacher. So just pointing to those ways in which practice is organized. 
in practicing loving kindness uh, uh, around that time, also Sharon Salzberg's book came out. Those results were actually much more predictable than anything else that I had done so far because there was a description of how to practice and what to expect. And in practicing in that limited way around those concepts, the, the results did begin to unfold in a way that was predictable. But the insight past did not really unfold in that way until I got to Shinsen. And in practicing there with the techniques that he had developed, I began to have traditional stages of uh, insight that really mapped along the progress of insight as Mahasi Seda described in his Manual of Insight, the 16 stages. What was interesting about that was that I was having those typical stages unfolding from doing the practice of meditation, but since I was in a secular community, those stages weren't really acknowledged. And so I found uh, that the, the initial experiences of dissolution, which is the fifth stage, uh, um, was not really understood in the way that I was describing it, nor was it anticipated from the way that I was practicing. And so that I ended up in a, in a, a in the Buddhist term for it is knowledge of miseries, but in the West, we often call it the dark night of the soul, which corresponds to St. John of the Cross or uh, Teresa of Avila. And what, Christian? So, George, it sounds like you're maybe advocating or implying that maps are a necessary or helpful part of practicing, that like one should have goals, at least they give an understanding of where you're at so that you have some context, or like what do you think about the importance of maps or whether you can practice without them? I like uh, practice maps or Dharma maps because it's it moves you through the, the the various kinds of insights that are necessary to make progress on the path, and also you can evaluate how your practice is going in that way. I was uh, in Shinzen's community, and he's quite uh, adamant that because maps are not universal, that we shouldn't uh, advocate one map or another, that you should organically understand what uh, practice appeals to so that you do the practice and then have it develop over time. And in relationship to a teacher, have the teacher uh, digest what experiences you're having and then have them explain uh, the insights that you're having and then recommend the next series of practices that you can do so that you move toward uh, the goal of enlightenment. But then the goal of enlightenment in the Theravada tradition is different than the goal of enlightenment in the Zen tradition is different than the goal of enlightenment in the Tibetan tradition. And so which enlightenment really are, are we talking about at that point? 
And then again, we could turn to the individual and ask the individual what it is that they're hoping to get out of their practice. What is the reason that they're practicing and try and uh, tailor the practice so that that would happen. But then are you in a dialogue with a teacher that's consistent enough that you could get the feedback that you need in order for that to happen? In the West, I don't notice that we have set up structures in meditation communities where that's a, a real uh, ongoing possibility. Uh, you have um, the, in the West, at least in uh, the communities I've been involved in, the main intense practices is formed around retreats. And so you have access to the teachers while you're on retreat. But if you're not on retreat, often the access is limited. Um, there is a lot of conversation about people getting into trouble in 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 the the process of insight that happens because there the either there there's aspects of their self experience which is are presented to them in a way that's difficult for them to imagine or or integrate and also the the nature of uh, the way that we create our experience of conceptual reality uh, can be undermined in a way that it creates a sense of fearfulness rather than a sense of insight and safety I think that what we are doing in developing these communities around meditation practices and developing an understanding of the nature of the human condition uh, that uh, we can reflect on how uh, practices are well organized. Obviously, we need a, a lot of different ways of practicing because there's a lot of variation in the, in the way that people are. Um, certainly the different traditions develop and have developed in different cultures. In the West, we are taking in really, since the late 1950s, uh, these uh, Asian ideas and running them through the, the structures of our culture. And we can expect them to evolve and change uh, and be reflective of our culture that that would be a desirable and ordinary process that would happen we wouldn't we don't need to restrict so much the changes that will come but we do need to preserve uh, the the value of the teaching in terms of the insight that it can offer us that making sense The early practice of uh, uh, and early teachings of the Buddha, the Theravada practice, went into China and over hundreds of years evolved into Chan and then into Japan, uh, over hundreds of years developed into Zen and then went into uh, Tibet and over hundreds of years uh, developed into Vajrayana practice each of those cultures being infused into the way that the teaching is described 
so that it's relevant for members of those cultures is what I think is happening here. The teachings are evolving uh, in their description so that people who are embedded in uh, these cultures can relate to them in a way that is useful to them. And at the same time, the, the insight into the nature of the human condition and enlightenment is being preserved What I notice in the West is because it is not a central, uh, ordinary organizing principle, uh, Buddhist meditation, uh, that it, it appeals to a subset of people in our society that come because the, the pursuit through the traditional uh, avenues for addressing suffering have not been uh, relieving enough of that suffering. And so uh, we turn to alternatives outside of that uh, central culture, uh, one of which is um, Buddhist meditation, and that we come to it to address our experience of suffering. That's why I think that... Uh, using a uh, a reflection in psychology is is useful in our culture because we're used to looking at the nature of our suffering through that reflection and uh, i think that one of the things that's curious about the way that we practice in the west of course is we've dispensed with the traditional preliminary practices uh, pretty quickly. I mean, are, are you doing your 100,000 prostrations before you begin your Tibetan practice? <laughs> or are you jumping over that and going right in? When I was in Myanmar several years ago, I went to a monastery and I uh, was uh, uh, um, assigned a monk who was going to take me around the monastery and the exchange was that I would help him uh, refine his English, and he would uh, talk to me about the meditation. But he'd been in the monastery for five years, and he was still uh, doing breath counting to enter into jhanic states, and that the, the teacher, uh, his teacher was not yet satisfied at the stability of his jhanic states, that he would then be allowed to move into a insight practice. You, you know anybody here who would be willing to do five years of just breath counting before they would be offered an insight practice? Uh, I, I, I think that that would be unlikely, at least with the people that I'm aware of. We like to go fast. We like to go all the way. Uh, to the advanced practices that start there. Christian? George, do you think that like a really westernized Buddhism can arise that's not like totally commodified, like meditate so you can be a better CEO kind of stuff? Oh. Like whatever Peter Thiel is doing? I, I think that the, the mindfulness uh, aspect of it is is 
in some sense fitting in to that process but i don't i certainly don't think that the, the stuff that we do here or most of the the teaching that's interesting uh, to me personally is in that vein i think that uh, really the that's the very surface of what's possible from practice and when you see the depth of practice and and see the the that very superficial uh very superficial outcomes from that kind of practice it it loses its interest almost immediately as those in, insights open the uh one aspect of course is the ethical aspect of it are you uh adopting a non-harming stance and organizing your life in that way uh, or have you simply skipped over that preliminary part of the practice where you don't uh, address any of that what i like to say is in the beginning of of deep practice you make the decision to become a good person and what that means is that you make a decision to live uh, in an ethical way in the world. You don't uh, make a decision to be a little bit happier or to be a little less stressed. You have to really examine the intention and actions that you take in the world and move yourself in the direction of an ethical stance. Uh, if you look at the um, precepts for lay people, that would be a, a framework for that. The non-harming, not lying, not stealing, not engaging. Sexual misconduct that causes harm, not engaging in uh, intoxicants that lead to heedlessness. One of the things that uh, that I think is interesting about the communities of people that gather around meditation practices who've exhausted other avenues of in their attempts to relieve their own suffering is that the surface level stuff isn't strong enough to help them. And so they tend to dive deeper in. The world uh, is uh, filled with suffering. And how do you hold the space for that without needing to restrict it or turn away from it? If you grew up in a way that there was a lot of suffering in your life, you're used to uh, people turning away from the intensity of your suffering, finding a community of people where that doesn't happen as an extraordinary value. At Metagroup, we, we teach mainly a practice, uh, I like to call it meditation and attachment. So we use traditional meditation investigation strategies to explore the conditioning and understanding the 
conditioning that we've experienced through the attachment lens uh, can be very helpful. We, you asked a question earlier, Christian, about maps. The attachment map is a wonderful way to explore conditioning. Um, and it, it tends to resonate more deeply for me than the poetry of India 2,500 years ago or the Zen poetry or the Tibetan poetry. That these descriptions then allow you to use your meditation practices to uh, investigate the, these structures and then also to begin to change them still uh, relying on this understanding that we take in the sensing data. Mind, of course, is organizing what that data is. And then that ultimate reality that we are able to experience through that sensing data and mind is compared to a perceptual database of previously defined sensing moments. And then we take that and roll it into the construction of conceptual reality that's happening for us in each moment as we make it. As we begin to explore that mechanism of converting the sensing experience, that ultimate reality into conceptual reality, what we begin to understand is these working models that create the basis of conceptual reality. Uh, that if you grew up in a, in a family system where you were valued, whether your where your preferences were valued, where your experience and uh, interpretations were valued, what you'll notice in each moment that you create conceptual reality, that's there. You have an expectation that your preferences matter, that your opinions matter that you should be taken care of. And it's right there in everything that you've created in terms of conceptual reality. But if you had a different kind of upbringing, those um, basises are also there in conceptual reality. If you grew up in a household where your preferences didn't matter, uh, then you create moment by moment these realities where your preferences don't matter. If you grew up in a, in a family system where you had no value, you create these tableaus of conceptual reality that are infused with the understanding that you have no value. Then this is really the insight, that traditional insight into the nature of our experience that we need to be able to see so that we can begin to affect the way that we have uh, operated based on those working models. When you look at the uh, experience of uh, that's described in attachment can, uh, theory, it accounts for that. Those, those first experiences of the child, uh, an understanding that we do not see ourselves uh, um, through our own sensing experience. What we see is the reflection of ourselves in the eyes of the caregiver and that that's the basis of the working models and that reflective capacity. 
and we construct these things and we need to be able to actually get in there and pull apart these working models of ourselves and examine whether they're actually reflective of who we are and reflective of the experience of the present moment uh, as it's unfolding for us or uh, that uh, our capacity to experience the present moment is uh, distorted or clouded by the incapacity of the working models to take that in and then begin to make those modifications there. One of the things, um, to give you an example, the metaphor that the Buddha used to describe this was the, the chariot. I do know the, the, the story of the, the chariot as the Buddha described it. Where is the chariotness in the chariot? When you take the chariot apart and you lay all of the pieces on the ground, you have the wheels, you have the yoke, you have the platform, you have the rail, you have the reins. All of that is there, axle. You lay it all on the ground. Where in the wheel is the chariot? Where in the axle is the chariot? Where is in the yoke? Where in the yoke is the chariot? But when you put the whole thing together and all of those pieces are there, you have the chariotness of the chariot. Right? You can stand on it. You can hitch it to a horse. You can ride it. So when the sense of self is gathered together from all of the different pieces that make up that experience, including that working model of the sense of self, we have the experience of self. But when you describe attachment conditioning and what happens and how that creates distortions in the view that are predictable based on that uh, attachment conditioning, I could recognize that view almost immediately. But the metaphor of the chariotness was not actually illustrating that. I heard a lecture uh, in the, the late 90s by Alan Shore, who was uh, uh, speaking at the Neuropsychiatric <laughs> Institute at UCLA. Um, he gave a lecture on disorganized attachment, and he said, this is the pattern of people's lives who have disorganized attachment. And he described this pattern of a lot of beginnings, uh, sometimes really bright beginnings. And then some middles, not a lot of middles, but some middles, and then almost no finishes because the the uh, uh, the emotional difficulty of uh, integrating into a team of people and sustaining those relationships, and also the anxiety about succeeding, often combined in in this way that created that pattern. I identified it immediately. It was a pattern that I had been wrestling with all of my life, trying to figure out how I could uh, affect so that I didn't have to have these bright beginnings and uh, some troubled middles and no finishes because it was so painful uh, to repeat that without uh, feeling any sense of agency to undo it. That making sense? That, that description uh, of of how conditioning uh, tends to unfold was immediately useful to me, whereas the, the, the poetry, although I could understand it in a, intellectually and it 
made sense and I even enjoyed it, uh, did not offer the same uh, avenue of exploration that re resulted in the release of the patterns. So that's what I like. And then I also like the idea of preliminary practices. I know that we don't tend to do many of them, but I do think that if you have a, a attachment, uh, adverse attachment conditioning, uh, working through that adverse attachment conditioning is a preliminary practice before going on to a, a deep insight you move through that conditioning, which you can do pretty quickly, uh, develop your meditation skill in working with these patterns of conditioning, which are uh, easily described. Not only do you learn the techniques and how to operate them, but you clear away the obstacles that then allow you to uh, sprint at the more uh, classical investigations of what enlightenment is which is really to see in a deep way the way that these um, uh, conditioned responses to what's actually happened to you inform the way that you create each moment of conceptual reality. And that the only way to really undo that habitual construction of these limiting ideas about self and world is through that practice of really seeing it clearly, watching it unfold moment by moment. That making sense? So if you practice in the traditional Mahasi map, you do the one set of meditation strategies it tends to lead to the the next insight in along the path and you do the uh, practices for that insight it moves you into the next insight and you move all along in just a in an ordinary flow if you do the six lamps practice through each of the lamp stages you move in that way uh, and that can be quite useful i think uh or you can assemble, as as many of us do in the West, these these uh, uh, grab bags of practice, and then be surprised by what happened. But then the it is a rather spectacular range of knowledge that you need in order to understand what's actually happening from the variations of practice that you're doing. Uh, you, you know, do you like to cook? Uh, I like to cook and I cook quite a bit and I like to make my own recipes based on my particular tastes. Uh, and I will work on one particular dish over a period of time until it's just really the way that I like it. And then I'll cook it a few times and then I'll lose interest and move on to something, but then I'll remember it and want to uh, uh, recreate it. And Sometimes I leave out one of the ingredients and I'll taste it and it won't work at all. Uh, and then I'll have to re-engineer it. Christian? Whenever I make something, George, I, I like the first time I make it, it's really, really good because I follow the recipe. And then, then sometimes <laughs> I really fuck it up because I start freestyling. <laughs> 
you have to get through that part until you get to the the, the moment of perfection when it's it meets your taste buds exactly. So do you think the 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 sort of cafeteria approach versus just kind of picking one thing and sticking to it like is that something that we even have control over is that kind of like people will just gravitate to whichever one makes sense for them or like which one do you recommend just like pick a path and stick with it i think if you're early in practice it's better to pick a a, a defined way of working so that you can see how uh, insight opens into insight, opens into insight, and, and that it's predictable. But then also, there's a vast range of ways of practicing, and that some exploration is also useful. I, I um, when I having been a long time practitioner in uh, Shinzen's world, when I began to go into the Tibetan practice, I didn't need to spend a lot of time in the preliminary practices because I could always already do everything as it came up. It was described differently, but it, it wasn't a, a big issue for me to be able to uh, practice in the way that they recommended and have the insight that they offered in that. It really wasn't until getting into the, the more esoteric practices where the that foundational practice that I had didn't really apply much. And so then it was a much more involved uh, way of practicing in order to have the insights that were recommended. But because I understood the nature of insight in practice, uh, it was also not uh, as laborious as it was in the beginning of the Theravada practice. And because uh, I think a lot of the, the obstacles that get into the way of practice had already been um, pushed through in the earlier practice, that also didn't happen. So what I noticed was the movement through the the, the map uh, and the insights came quite quickly. Um, and I didn't have to begin again uh, the way that I did with the Theravada practice. But why don't we do a little meditation practice? I thought that we could start with a little bit of breath counting and then do a, a see, hear, feel, uh, focus in, focus out, which is a good insight practice. All right, and the period of meditation coming back into the present moment experience of the outside. <clears throat> So we have a few things coming up. We have a level one coming up uh, uh, starting in August. If I can find the dates on that. So August 12th for four Saturdays from 9 to uh, 1.15. Um, we have a level zero coming up on... Our new level zero is going to be on Thursday, August 3rd. 
And then we're going to have a new level two starting. Um, on September 21st. So those are the main things that are coming up. I'll take a look at it. Most of that stuff is on the website already. Um, really appreciate your practice. I do offer the teachings freely, but I do hope that if you can make a donation, you will. There's a link on the website to make a donation. Any amount is helpful. It supports me and also the work that Metagroup is doing. Really appreciate you. Thank you. And I'll see you soon. Bye.